Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. And welcome to Utterly Moderate, the podcast where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. We like to think of ourselves as the opposite of cable news. I'm Allison Dagnus. I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppard. I'm a sociologist. I'm a little bit distracted at the moment because I'm seeing a news story coming across my news feed. Did you see this, Allie? I, I don't know. What are you talking about? There's this story. It's this teenage kid who got wrongfully convicted and sent to an adult prison. You didn't see this? I did not see this, no. It's okay. Don't worry. His face broke out. Uh, You see, I was ready to be sad, Lawrence, (laughs) about wrongful convictions, but now I have to be sad about acne. About my jokes. (laughs) About your jokes. About teenage acne. Wow. That was good. Can I be serious for a moment, though, and actually say something that actually is serious and kind of sad? Yes. So I should not, I should not get up my, uh, my, yeah. Okay. My drum Uh, thing. I know you want to laugh at my misfortune, but, um, last night I was actually, I was playing Scrabble with my family and I somehow swallowed some tiles. I'm just, I'm really, yeah, I'm just really concerned that it could spell disaster. Okay, you had me for just one second, because what I know, and perhaps a few people in our listening audience might also know, is that it's not beyond the realm of possibility that you would swallow tiles. I don't know why, but it's possible. I just think that that's within your wheelhouse. I just want to say to most U.S. states who are listening, you're welcome Uh, for those jokes. I want to say to all the countries listening, you're welcome. Japan, France, the UK, Norway, Germany, India, Ireland, Canada, Nepal, Lebanon, Aruba, Australia, Russia, Kenya, Slovenia, Italy, Jamaica, Ecuador, Malaysia, and Morocco. You are welcome. Wow, that's a that's a powerful list. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for doing that. We um we are very excited to have gotten some feedback from some of our devoted audience base. So um, keep letting us, let us know. Keep letting us know. Is there a place people can go to give us feedback? Wait a minute. Do we have a website? (laughs) I think we do because you made it. So um, yes, go to our website. Please leave us comments. And if you have an idea for a podcast episode that you would like to hear us discuss with an expert, please pass that along. If you are an expert and you want to talk about something, Please nominate yourself. Uh, we are we have a whole bunch of ideas and a whole bunch of things scheduled. But uh, you know, the it's hopefully if we're all staying healthy and getting our COVID vaccines and exercising a little bit and eating right, hopefully this podcast will continue for many moons to come. So we would love your love your help in booking shows that you would find interesting. Yeah, and if you're famous or if your name is Tim Miller. We'd love to have you on the show, or at least Allie would. Oh my God. If your name is Tim Miller and you're listening to this, I just got I just got so happy right now, even thinking that Tim Miller could be listening to us. Um, he's just he has he has my whole heart at this point. So yes. if you are listening, Mr. Miller, um, thank you for your outstanding writing and um and your just 
pitch perfect commentary. God, yes, please yeah. come on the show so we can just have an hour of awkward silence as Allie stares at you. As I just stare at you. Yeah, it would really be bad. <laughs> this is why, you know what? This is why back in the 90s when I worked at C-SPAN, whenever somebody who I had like a minor crush on would come in for a call-in show, the producers around me would would actually physically hold me down and not let me go greet anybody because <laughs> they were so scared that I was just going to completely freak out. And, um, and in graduate school, I think my fellow grad students did not know that rule. So at one point we were at a conference and Robert Reich walked in and I just, I just love Robert Reich so much. So I went running up to him and just started blathering at him. And at some point I turned around and realized that all of my friends were laughing at me because I was actually moving my tushy around. Like I was wagging my tail. <laughs> I was so excited. And the expression on his face was so pure and simple. And it said, security, security, <laughs> get this woman away from me. So, um, so we, we actually can't have anybody that I really, really like on the show. Cause I'll just act weird. For anybody who had on their bingo card that we were going to talk about having a crush on Robert Reich. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, come <laughs> on. My friends knew. Of course they knew. That's on the bingo card. I'm always on the lookout for people saying sentences that couldn't possibly have ever been uttered before. That is factually incorrect. I had a crush in grad school on Robert Reich. People have crushes on... <laughs> I'm not talking about like, you know, like Stan level crushes. I'm just saying like, you know, it's a very smart man. Did you ever see his uh, his documentary, Inequality for All? Yes, I did. Yeah, it's really good. See, I told you he's a very, very smart man. He's very smart, very engaging. Yeah. Yeah. See, there you go. See, now you've got a crush on Robert Rush. <laughs> that's another person we can't have on the show because like, we couldn't carry each other. We would just sit there and stare at him through Zoom. That's right. Away. It would be fine. I'm sure it yeah. would work out. Right now, our relationship yeah. exists uh, as him saying, please stop emailing me. I don't want to come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> have we included a picture of me to say, do you remember this woman? Do you still have a, uh, <laughs> what is that called? Do you still have a um, restraining order? Restraining order. As if you, you don't know what that is. What yeah. is it? What is I can't it that think of so what that thing is. many people have against me? Restraining orders. That's what it is. Of course. Hey, you're a good actress. I can't think of the Thank name you. of that. Thank you very much. Yep. That's exactly right. So what do we have on tap today, Allie? Today on our show, I'm so excited. This is a wonderfully fun episode. We are talking to George Massa and Matt Killingsworth, who are both college professors. And before you just click off and say, nope, not interested. No, thank you. <laughs> nope, not interested in more college professors. Um, George is a college professor in Beirut, Lebanon. And Matt is a college professor in Tasmania, Australia. So we are very lucky to have both of them on. They are going to be talking about how different uh, regions of people and, and different demographics of people view the United States. And I find that to be endlessly fascinating. I also find it fascinating. So why don't we give people a little bit of background as to why this was your idea. It's a very good idea. Uh, but this was your idea for a topic for the show. And why might this have struck you as something that was important right now? I, I love finding out, A, what the world is interested in, right? And so um, the best way for me to do that 
in the mornings, the very early mornings, if you are flipping through some radio channels every now and then, you can get um, hooked into the BBC um, that's coming live out of the UK. And um, it's always fascinating to listen to another nation's news because the things that are important to another country, sometimes they are just wor- literally worlds away from what you know are the things that are important to us. Right. So I like that. But then I also like to know how you know we have this we have this like USA swagger about us, and um, and sometimes that is a good thing, and sometimes that is not an earned thing. So I like to find out. What do other countries think about us? Because I think that that's helpful in uh, in the way that we grow and um, the policies that we create and enact. So in preparation for the show, I actually did go to do due diligence and take a look at some of the surveys and just take a look. How have these trends changed over time? What's, you know, how has international opinion of the U.S. changed? And couple things stuck out at me, just sort of general favorability has been falling since 2000, pretty steadily and pretty substantially. And pretty much the same trend, although it's a shorter uh, time period, but for our handling of the coronavirus. But one that really stuck out at me was views of American democracy, mm-hmm. which was really interesting to me because I know that our democracy is sick. I mean, my, my opinion of it is that it's sick, but Wait, do you mean sick is what the kids are saying these days? Like, <laughs> oh, our democracy is sick. It's or like, boss. oh no, it's got a fever <laughs> and it needs to lie down for a little bit. Yeah, it needs more cowbell. <laughs> no, uh, it is not not that. Uh, uh, um, it is ill. It is wounded. Yes, uh, it needs medical attention. And uh, I think there's plenty of good evidence of that. But I didn't realize, I mean, I'd always been told not just from folks within the U.S., but from colleagues abroad, that despite all of its problems, that American democracy had been something to aspire to by many people around the world, and that they were really picking up on the fact that things weren't going so well in our democracy. So can we talk about that? You're a political scientist. I'd love to hear your views on our democracy and whether you agree that it's ailing. We can absolutely talk about that. I I think the thing to highlight, especially when it comes to this episode, is how much the world knows about the United States. Um, That it is jaw dropping to speak to somebody who has as thorough a knowledge of the American political system from political actors and elected officials straight through to the processes. And I would. I would wager, although that's not my vice of choice, I would bet that most of the international faculty at different schools around the around the globe um, who study the United States know more about American politics than probably, I guess, way more than half of the population of the U.S. I mean, it is so thorough, that knowledge. Um, and it's very impressive because I don't know that too many Americans really spend all that much time thinking about the politics of too many other countries. Can we just pause for a second and let me ask you, what is your vice of choice? Oh, my God. Wine. Everybody knows that. <laughs> box? Box wine? No. I mean, sometimes. But no, maybe. I no, just imagine no. you with a giant straw with a giant <laughs> box of wine. 
<laughs> so what is that? Is that just the sort of global reach of American media? Uh, what is that? That How, how are these folks so uh, familiar with our system? I think it's, a, uh, you know, it's a couple of things. The, the media are, of course, to me, it's always, it always boils down to the media. So yes, the reach of the media, um, the influence of American pop culture internationally, that also affects things. And, you know, for decades and decades, the U.S. has been the leader in forging democracy, the leader in, um, you know, being the country that is the greatest help to other nations who need it, um, the standard bearer of what democratic practices are. And when the Soviet Union fell, you know, what the United States called itself and what others called us, we were the, you know, the sole remaining superpower. And so I think that with that vaunted place in the world, then others are going to pay attention to us. And so I think it's a combination of a bunch of things. So I'm of the opinion that our democracy is ailing. And I know that you think I'm a particularly pessimistic person, but in this particular regard, I mean, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. Uh, and in this regard, there is a lot of uh, ink being spilled about this, that, yes, our democracy actually is um, a bit troubled at the moment. So my list is pretty long, so bear with me. But uh, a number of researchers, including Yasha Monk, argue that American democracy is at serious risk of decline. So our democratic institutions and norms are under pretty extreme threat. They can be saved, but he says the warning signs are flashing red. Uh, the Economist, their democracy index agrees they don't have the U.S. as a full democracy. They have us as a flawed democracy because of polarization, extremely low levels of trust in institutions and political parties, deep dysfunction in the functioning of government. And they say that consensus is almost impossible to achieve. Um, other folks have pointed to the fact that Americans' openness to non-democratic forms of government has been growing. Support for anti-system parties and movements has been increasing. And some of the data is pretty shocking. So, like, for Americans born before World War II, the belief in the importance of living in a democracy was really widespread. It was like a sacred value. 72% of those born before World War II considered it absolutely essential, compared to only 30% of those born since 1980. In recent years, one in six Americans reported that military rule would be good or very good, compared to one in 16 in 95. Other things that worry me, money and politics. I think now over 40% of donations in federal elections come from the top 0.01%. Uh, gerrymandering, uh, the outsized power of rural areas, and small state bias. I think the 22 smallest states have like 44 senators, while California, which has the same population size as those states, has two senators. Um, and that has really a very real impact on federal elections. In 2016, Republicans gained control of the presidency, the House, and the Senate, despite failing to win a majority of the votes in any of those three. Uh, Simon Barnacle talking about this, he says, Democrats can routinely win the majority of votes cast in federal elections, but fail to translate those votes into power because their voters are in the wrong place. Uh, he says by 2040, it's estimated that 40% of Americans will live in just five states, half the population, 
will be represented by 18 senators, the other half by 82. And of course, and, and I could go on and on, but you know, uh, I'll end my list here. But an, another thing that worries me a lot is just restrictions and, and voting rights, which seem to be on the rise across the country and legislatures across the country. I'm not sure that I would add much to that list. I think it's fairly comprehensive. Um, you know, to me, if you ask me what's, you know, what is ailing America? Like what is slowly killing America? What is the poison in America that is damaging us? Um, you know, I would give this list in this order. Uh, polarization, number one. How divided we are, number two. How much we argue and hate each other, number three. How we don't talk to each other, number four, and how much gridlock there is because of negative partisanship, number five. Um, to me, the you know the foundation is always polarization, and because that is something that it it is it has tentacles into everything else, and it affects absolutely everything else. And and there's a chicken and egg argument to be had that uh, we will not do here. Um, but you know, if you start with polarization, that gets to too much money in politics and the need for campaign finance reform. Um, if you start with polarization, it gets to partisan gerrymandering and the difficulties that we have in representing Americans. Um, and if you start with polarization, you get to a place where groups, big, big groups of Americans feel, and rightly so, that they are being ignored by the powerful, by the elected officials, and they are furious. And you know what? Um, I in many a talk I have made this joke, um, but I still maintain it. Um, you know, being ignored is a terrible feeling, and our students don't realize this because most of them have never been married. But if you've been married, <laughs> then you know what it is like to feel ignored, and um, and that is that is some very painful stuff. And so now, if you look at the very big groups of Americans who rightly feel that they are ignored. That helps to continue and fuel the polarization that then affects all of the other problems that we have. Yeah, my wife was always going on and on and on about how I don't listen to her. <laughs> and I, I don't know what she was saying. I can't remember. I wasn't listening. But um. oh, my God, I think we should. I, I'm nominating your wife for like a presidential medal of freedom or the Nobel Peace Prize or something like that. The uh, when you when you did your list and like the first four were all the same thing, which was very yeah. funny, by the way. Thank you very it much. It made me think of uh, the office when uh, Michael and Jan are having Jim and Pam over, and and she's in the bedroom and she's saying, "Oh my gosh, Michael had these walls painted white and it was just so ugly." So I changed it to eggshell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we can't get through this whole list, but. Uh, Let's go through a few of these things that are ailing democracy. And I'd love to get your thoughts about them as a political scientist. The research has shown that the majority of the American public really are not that interested in politics at all. But man, we are all really yelling at each other now because of our polarization and because polarization is pushing our politics into every single facet of our lives. And, you know, just to put it another way, my daughter today said, can we have Chick-fil-A for lunch? And just the words Chick-fil-A, probably half of our listeners just perked up and thought, <laughs> game on. And, you know, just to be very clear about this, it is a fried chicken sandwich, right? And that's really what Chick-fil-A should be. 
but it's not. And suddenly those, those, you know, that fast food chain, those words, they bring on all of this meaning. And that is one, um, you know, result of all of this divide that we have one, uh, really, really tragic circumstance that we are trying to shuffle our way out of right now. So did you go to the Chick-fil-A sandwich? I did. I did. And you know what, for those, for our listeners on the left, they're going to say, well, I don't eat chicken that's wrapped in homophobia. And for those of our listeners on the right, they're going to say, well, I eat chicken that is godly. And I am saying my daughter wanted a Chick-fil-A sandwich and I bought her one. Um, and, and I think that when we could get to a place where these aren't, you know, all of this isn't a code for something like, oh, well, now I know who you are. Um, I think that we'll all be better off because unless you're a good friend of mine, you don't know who I am and you don't know why I got a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Um, and now you all do. It's because my daughter asked for it and I love her very much. Um, you know, when we start using the places we go and, and the food that we eat and the goods that we buy as um, signals for who we are politically, then even as a political scientist, somebody who loves American politics, I think that we have become way overly politicized in our lives because there should be parts of our lives that have nothing to do with politics. And it's hard to find those these days. So let's talk about uh, the issue of gerrymandering. Um, I, I don't know that if a lot of folks are, are paying attention to this. I think this is kind of an inside the beltway thing or an academia thing. I'm not sure that, I mean, not maybe not gerrymandering specifically. I think that's something that a lot of folks are, are paying attention to, but the very specific issue that I want to bring up, which is, uh, and you know this, that regularly you can look at congressional elections, you can look at Senate elections, presidential elections, regularly, every single cycle and find that the population in given states, the population, you know, uh, nationwide uh, can vote for a certain party, Republican or Democrat, right? But it's, it's increasingly been sort of towards Republicans just for by virtue of this particular historical period. But uh, and the results don't match <laughs> the share of the voters, right? So uh, you can have a state where there can be, you know, 13 districts up for, for election and, you know, the votes could go, you know, 60-40 for one party and the other party could pick up a majority of the seats. So uh, my question to you would be, talk to us a little bit about how we got to this place where there's this outsized rural uh, power, at the, especially at the federal level in elections. How do we get to that point? There are several components of American democracy that lend themselves towards favoring specific states and constituencies over others. And those are found in the Constitution. So one institution is the Electoral College. The system of the Electoral College is such that it gives more weight to states that have less population that was, that was done on purpose. And we still have that today. It is um, something that I think infuriates mostly Democrats and a lot of centrists because what you um, can see from the 2000 election and then the 2016 election is that one candidate can win the popular vote in the nation, but still lose a presidential election by virtue of the electoral college vote. And that is because of basically 
math um, where a, an elector from California, which has 39.5 million Americans living in it, they represent, I think it's just a, a couple people over 4,000 Californians. So if you are an elector and the way you get that um, electoral college number for each state is you add the number of house seats that a state has plus the number of Senate seats that a state has. And every state has two senators. So automatically, if you're Wyoming, you've got two senators, you still have one house member, which is known as an at-large seat. So that means you have three electors from your state and um, California has 53. So if an elector in California represents a few people over 4,000 voters in Wyoming, one elector represents um, just a few over 700. And that is a, that's, that's a, a weight that's disproportionate and that's in the constitution, right? And so that's kind of thing one. Um, in addition to that, the, just the geography of who we are and how the United States developed in terms of cities and, and the big, big metropolises being on the coasts and the ways that different people have moved thanks to either, you know, the Great Migration, where Black voters moved from the South to the North, and um, other waves of immigration from abroad. What we've ended up with are very big cities that are on the coasts and in cities because people move to cities for different reasons or stay in rural areas for different reasons. We have what is called sorting. We have sorted ourselves so that cities tend to be more big D democratic and rural areas tend to be more, you know, big R Republican. And because of that, then that you, I think it's like 20 of the states that are in the middle of the country, you know, their population is not as big as California's. And so there's, you know, all those, That's folks those deserve 20 states combined. Yeah, combined. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, and everybody deserves representation and everybody deserves to be heard. And you don't want, you know, five states running the show every single time because that's not fair either. But what we end up with is a system where there are times when a party is is in charge and they have the majority in the House or the Senate or the White House. And um, that party is representing fewer Americans than the party that is technically in the minority, but represents the majority of the country's voters. Well, I think it's important to recognize that's not just something, and, you, and you, you said this, but just to underscore this, this is not just something that happens in presidential elections. Uh, I think uh, multiple times over the past few cycles, the makeup of the House and the Senate didn't actually match the distribution of votes just overall nationally, right? Right, yes. And um, and I think in that case, I think you're you're leaning towards gerrymandering and what that is i mean so let's let's yeah let's, let's unpack let's switch that a little from the bit electoral college to okay. gerrymandering everybody's favorite bugaboo <laughs> everybody's, uh, everybody's favorite topic yeah. um so when congressional districts are drawn they are every 10 years the you know the census is taken and we count all of the noses of everybody who lives in the country and so the federal government takes a look at the big map and finds out who lives where and and they divide up the states 
And what they say is, okay, we've got 435 House members. We have now 330 million Americans. Where do people live? Each state, how many House members do you get? And so that's called reapportionment. And that happens after the census, which is, you know, every year that ends in a zero, that's also in the Constitution. And so reapportionment occurs and a state finds out, how are you doing? Like, basically, did you gain a lot of people? Um, You know, Nevada always gains because people move to Las Vegas. Florida always gains because, you know, my ancestors, you know, you you are Jewish, you are old, you move to Florida. Um, And so people move to Florida. It's warmer. It, uh, I, I mean, I, I, Florida is just scary to me, but between the, the <laughs> pythons and the alligators and the Florida man who, you know, steals a python or an alligator and like robs a beer cave. I don't know. It all seems frightening, but call me in 20 years. Cause I'm going to be like, I'm moving to Del Boca Vista phase two. <laughs> Those are my people. So they always gain, right? They gain a house seat or two. And here in Pennsylvania, where we live, we didn't lose people. Um, But we sure didn't grow as much as other states did. So in the last round, which was in 2010, the last round of reapportionment, we lost a House seat. And at that point, it gets tossed to the state legislature to draw our congressional districts. And so the state legislature is um, tasked with, you know, saying, okay, so on in Pennsylvania, we've got Philadelphia on one side, very, very, very big city. And we've got Pittsburgh on the other side, a smaller city, but still a city. And then we have this big swath of land in between these two cities. And so how are these congressional districts going to be drawn? There are limits to this. And the Supreme Court said that racial gerrymandering, which is when you would favor a racial group within a congressional um, drawing of a district, that is unconstitutional. But they then, probably about 10, 15 years later, said, you know what? Um, Racial gerrymandering is bad, but partisan gerrymandering is fine. And what that means is it is perfectly constitutional to draw a congressional district using the data that we all have about where Democrats and Republicans live. And that's how you can change the shape of a congressional district and have it favor a Democrat or a Republican just by drawing that district to include more Democratic or Republican voters in that congressional district. And so there is some really sophisticated software out there that does this now very um, expensively, but effectively. And because of that, we are seeing more partisan gerrymandering. And there's not very much that can be done about it except if you challenge the constitutionality of that at the state level, which is what Pennsylvania did. So we there was a, a case that went to the Supreme Court that said partisan, partisan gerrymandering should be considered to be unconstitutional at the federal level. And the Supreme Court said, nope, we're not going to do that. But at the exact same time, Pennsylvanians went to our Pennsylvania state Supreme Court and said, this is a violation of our state constitution. And the you know, one man, one vote, freedom of voting, you know, equality for all principles that are in the state constitution. And the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania said, yeah, you're right. Guess what? Your districts are gerrymandered in a way that it is unfair. So we're going to take this puppy and we're going to outsource it and get it done properly so that it is it is equally drawn, right? So that, of course, in cities, you're going to have a district that's 
predominantly Democratic. And, and around where I live, it is, you know, it is a dominant Republican district. That is natural, but it has to be natural. It can't be, you know, a congressional district, especially in Pennsylvania, can't run from the bottom of the state right up to the top of the state, which is what the district looked like for the House member who represented Shippensburg. And his district, it must have taken him three hours to drive from one side of his district right up to the (laughs) other side. But, you know, bless him, he went from having a congressional district where his election was really tight, you know, it was a the Republican had a sort of a one point advantage in terms of the voters. When they redrew that district, um, it went from a, I think like a R plus one to an R plus seven. And that means that it doesn't really, the Democrat could, you know, proffer up somebody absolutely fat, you know, George Clooney could run (laughs) and in an R plus seven or an R plus 10 or where I am an R plus 19, you know, the Republican is going to win every time. And so if it's natural, yes. If it's unnatural, Our state Supreme Court said you can't do that. And we went from having 13 Republicans and five Democrats to now having nine Republicans and nine Democrats. And that, to me, makes sense. If you look back at the presidential election in Pennsylvania was one of those great swing states. Um, And in fact, it took us a long time to count the votes. So we were in the news for several days. Thank you very much for that, because that wasn't nerve wracking at all. But, you know, at the end of the day. Joe Biden beat Donald Trump in Pennsylvania by 70,000 votes, right? We had 9 million registered voters in Pennsylvania. So we are evenly divided. And our House membership represents that now. And that's good. To me, I think that's a good thing because that is representative. You shouldn't have the Democrats shouldn't have, you know, 15 people and the Republicans have three. Um, because that wouldn't make sense. And to me, this does make sense. And I think that it is more fair, but it takes an, uh, you know, an, uh, is it a quiver out of an arrow, an arrow out of a quiver um, for partisans who want one team to win? And if they have the state legislature majority, then that party is able now to go forward and do partisan gerrymandering as they wish. I can't I can't sort through the quiver and arrow issue for you because I'm that. too busy. Well, no, because I'm too caught up thinking about you talking about gerrymandering software. And I'm thinking, what kind of hell's workshop Silicon Valley incubator produces gerrymandering software? Actually, uh, there's there's a <laughs> lot of really, really good, uh, not only research, but really good sort of long form journalism and books that have been written about this. And this is the brainchild of a guy, uh, Tom Hoffler. He died last year. And Pennsylvania was one of the first states. Tom Hoffel. Was he the one name. who's like, whose like daughter came across it on his laptop yes. or something? Yes. 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 Yeah. It was such a huge case. Tom Hoffel. Um, and so Pennsylvania was one of the first states to use this. And they use this kind of software. And it was very, very effective. Jane Mayer wrote an article like the the League of Dangerous Map Makers. Um, And so we will link to that on our on our website um, because they're really good stories about this. And I think I'm butchering every name in the world. I didn't know we were going to be doing a deep dive on this. But um, but yeah, no, I mean, like if look, if if the if the Eppard family (laughs) could sort of rig it so that your next door neighbors would have to mow your lawn and take (laughs) out your garbage, you know, maybe you would. Maybe you would think about 
hiring somebody to make that happen. And did you ever watch the show Silicon Valley? Of course I did. I'm just thinking of, of Satan, but you know, you can stay at my house, but you need to buy me weed. (laughs) Do all your gerrymandering software. (laughs) If my friend Dave is listening to this, that is a haptic to you, my friend, um, because we, we end every texting with, you know, hail Satan. And it is a reference. It is a reference to Silicon Valley, not the Antichrist. Well, as you know, I'm very intrigued by this topic. I'm very concerned about this topic. But uh, this episode is all about how others view us internationally. And I think now's a good time for us to get that view. So let's go ahead and talk to our guests. Allie, do you want to introduce them? Today, we are very lucky to be joined by George Massey who is a university instructor of history and politics at the University of Science and Technology in Beirut, and Dr. Matt Killingsworth, who is a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Tasmania. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for you. Thank you so much for the invite. This is great. We are, we are so excited to talk about how different countries around the world view the United States. And um, we're not asking you to speak on behalf of all of the countries, but maybe you could each give us a little thumbnail sketch of the things that are important um, in Lebanon, in the Middle East, uh, in Tasmania, uh, in you know the Southern Hemisphere. What what is important about the United States, and and how does that affect how you see America? Okay, okay. So let's start from uh, the hot Middle East. (laughs) Okay, you see, when we're talking in general about Middle East, we're talking about a very uh, politicized society. So everybody is involved, is interested in politics. Uh, So it's not only in Lebanon. And mainly, uh, when it comes to what United States of America represents for them, we can say that the society might be divided into two big parts. An important part, they are skeptical about the U.S. for a small political reason. The the, the Palestinian question, the problem, you see, uh, the support to Israelis, okay? So from here, actually, the main approach for a lot of people concerning the U.S. And and it's not a secret that if we want to talk about pure politics, that the main concern of the U.S. is the security of Israel. So this is the priority. And that's how the biggest part of those people in our region, they are always skeptical. And they see always when America is involved in anything, it's related with some conspiracy issues against the interests of the Arabs. But at the same time, we have a lot of people who uh, support and they believe actually in the capabilities of United States of America. They are in excellent terms. For example, if I want to talk about Lebanon, we have thousands and thousands of Lebanese who are Americans. They live in America or between Lebanon and and states. Uh, and uh, for the surprise, the majority of those Lebanese, they vote Republicans. This is also a new detail. <laughs> okay. So we have, we have the, the both extreme. Some people who are extremely against America until the end, for them, anything related with the U.S. is dangerous. Okay, there is no benefit. It's the opposite. While the others, they see actually America as the best choice. And why? Because also when we're talking about this entity, Lebanon, we have always had been uh, uh, in, in a crisis, identity crisis. So there is no this direct sense of belonging to the state because unfortunately we have a sectarian system uh, 
And each sect is related with the country. That's why for some people, let's say they are, they are thinking through the Iranian approach, and that's why the U.S. for them is a big problem, okay? And also they believe that all our problems is coming due to this U.S. foreign policy and game of interest, etc. So others they see through the Gulf countries, it depends on the interest. So there is up and down, but in general, in general, and I'm not talking about a brand new issue, but a long time ago, there is a big question mark about the U.S. Also between the brackets, what's funny that you see that all of those who are anti-American, they insist to send their kids to America to study for higher education. <laughs> so it's weird, actually, sometimes. Yeah, there is no logic. Okay? But uh, but it is clear that uh, there is some reservation concerning the foreign policy of the Americans in the region. So this is not a secret. So, so very similar to George, the, the the question about how the United States is viewed in Australia is is complicated, and it involves lots of cultural and historical aspects to it. So the uh, politically, for example, the Australian Constitution um, is um, is indebted to the American Constitution. We have a bicameral federal parliament, exactly the same. They're called the same thing as they are in the United States, a Senate and a House of Representatives. But having said that, we have a parliamentary system similar to the British, which obviously goes from us also being a British colony. So there's also some shared history there between Australia and the United States as well. The... the the other really, really important part about any perceptions that Australia has of the United States involves um, our experiences during the Second World War. Um, Australia, as a very remote country, um, has a he- historically has had a heavy reliance on powerful countries. Leading up to the Second World War, it was the British. Um, when the British let Singapore go, there was a, 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 a tension here in Australia that we'd been sort of left to, to fend for ourselves and. Um, the American forces in the Pacific were regarded as saviors in so many respects for a, for a distant country. There's also the, the, the cultural similarities where we're both obviously English speaking countries. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of cultural similarities there. Um, access to Hollywood, um, uh, American TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. So there's the, there's, there's, there's sort of this amalgam of, um, of political, cultural, and historical aspects that, that inform um, Australia's view of um, the United States. F- further to what George said as well, there's a there's an interesting sort of polarity as well. There is also a group in Australia, or politically aware or politically unaware, depending on how you think about these things, who will blame all the ills in the world on the United States. Um, John Pilger is a, is a quite famous um, Australian author who writes about. Um, Forms of American imperialism, um, and 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 this is and, and it's it's not unusual, for example, to sort of see the occasional anti-U.S. Um, um, protest around key events. So, for example, um, when the United States invaded Iraq in two thousand and three, and Australian troops were committed, that was a that was a that was a, a, a divisive issue on whether we should be supporting the United States or whether that was an issue that had consequences for Australia's national interest. So, but more generally, uh, and without seeing polling on this, my sense is that the United States is viewed favourably in Australia. 
and is viewed as an important ally. And especially for Australia as a middle power, the United States is seen as a core upholder of the the international order and especially sort of the international order as it comes through the United States' involvement in establishing many of the multilateral institutions that we see around the so the United Nations, um, the the the, um, the World Bank, the, the the Bretton Woods institutions, but and and more recently as sort of an offset to China's rising power in the region as well, and so um, mostly mostly positive, and I imagine we'll discuss this a little bit later. Uh, my sense also is that the last four years might have damaged that somewhat as well, though. You know, I, I want to follow up with that. We can speak specifically about the last four years, but more generally speaking, um, do you think that the global ideas and opinions of the United States are closely tied to whomever is president? Do you think that this is that that they are separate? Um, does, you know, public opinion rise when there is a beloved president and then sink when somebody is less favorable? Or, or do you think that that those who are abroad separate the two? So I've got a very famous Australian quote for you, Ali, that um, in when uh, Lyndon Johnson visited Australia. The then Prime Minister Harold Holt announced that Australia is all the way with LBJ. This is a, a sort of an insight into the degree to which, at the time, um, and so my, my, that's 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 sort of a, a a long answer to no. I don't think it has generally that there has been deep support for American for the United States that has been independent of the administration at the time. And, and of course, of, of course, Ronald Reagan was popular at the height of the Cold War because of what he was doing with respects to the Cold War. Bill Clinton was a popular president in Australia um, because he paid saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show. Um, there were there are there are a variety of sort of aspects that inform popularity of, of U.S. presidents, and and there was a great degree of celebration in Australia when Barack Obama became president, the the, the first Black American president, and that was celebrated here in Australia as well. When it comes to popularity, presidents, you see, uh, it's the same case uh, when it comes, let's say, to. Ronald Reagan, because if I want to talk a little bit about historical phases and the relation with the U.S., with Lebanon and the region, well, uh, you see, we know very well that in 1979, we're talking about the shift in American policy. Uh, the Iranian Revolution, actually, and uh, there is a need for the American pres presence in the region. So from here, we started to witness, let's say, a type of tensions. Anyway. When it comes to Gulf countries in general, they believe that America is a must to protect them because without America, they can't exist. And this is not a secret that when President Trump actually was dealing with this question, he said, you want a protection, you have to pay for it. There is nothing for free. So it was very clear. And also there is a weird detail that I would like to add it here. When it comes to the Gulf country, this is the only place in the world when the colonial rule decided to leave and they were against it. So. 
the British left, the American came. Hello. A new reality started with 203. A lot of people who supported the US, they saw in this step actually is a big mistake because they believe that all what's going on today is the result of this earthquake that happened in 203. If we'll take the popularity of the president, well, when it comes to Ronald Reagan, there is a lot of reservation concerning this personality, especially in Lebanon, because when he was the president, uh, the Israelis invaded Lebanon in 1982. So they believe this is the consequences of the policy of Reagan who gave the green light. When it comes to Clinton, they love Clinton a lot. They respect Clinton a lot. Okay. Uh, when it comes to Trump, uh, you see, a lot of Lebanese voted for Trump four years ago and now recently. But uh, George Bush, the father, is very respected due also to his role, historical. Uh, but mainly the most popular one is Barack Obama. Okay, because it's like a new page in the history of the U.S. And uh, let's say we're talking about more humanistic touch in some, in some of his uh, point of view. And that's why a lot of people, they respected him. Uh, when it comes to Biden, it's it's a little bit early to talk about Biden, okay? But uh, no doubt, no doubt that what happened with with the last administration also it's a unique phenomenon. So that's why we see when it comes to Trump administration, people are divided or pro completely or against completely. So there is no in the middle, okay? While with other president, always we can search for middle common issues. So can I can I give both of you um, how America views itself and and how America thinks other countries think about us, and then I'd like to have you comment on the reality of that. So w- within the U.S., the narrative is that our democracy is the shining example around the world, and that's been something that's been trumpeted here for as long as I've been alive for sure. And I'm sure, you know, long before that, um, can you, I would like you to just comment on that in terms of what was the reality in terms of how, uh, folks in your country viewed the American democratic project and then how that might have changed, or at least what that perspective looked like when the images of the storming of the Capitol were coming across the television. You see, always, since the foundation of diplomatic relations, and uh, the U.S. main intention was to preserve democracy in Lebanon. Why Lebanon? Because for a while, this was the only, let's say, democratic experiment in the region. And at the same time, we have a lot of people who graduated from the U.S., so they absorb all of these liberal ideas and thought. And they believe that the U.S. actually can help in consolidating this fragile democracy in, in this region where always there is term oils actually and the problems. Uh, but as I mentioned before, some people they see in any American touch, whether it's cultural, educational, they related it to politics. So some people they are against completely. The US until today is still defending this idea because they believe if we do not have a democratic system in Lebanon, the opposite is going to be the anarchy. Who will take favor? Actually, the sub-state actors that they are supported, let's say, by Iran. Uh, 
You see, so it's a game of interest, but also the, the, the American democracy, the, the type of democracy that we have in the U.S., I believe it's actually not realistic to say that we can implement it in our region for a small reason. You see, democracy is a culture. It's a way of life. It's education. So we, it's not a package that we can bring it within 24 hours and we order it. And we saw it in Iraq. After a long-standing dictatorship, we started to talk about democracy. The result was a big mess and anarchy. We see that it's an excellent experiment when it comes, let's say, to the U.S. democracy and the practice. But also there was a big alarm when we saw, and I'm talking about myself and about the other, what happened in the capital. I'm a person who never thought that we might reach a day where we are going to see this. Okay? I'm sorry to say it, but it was a shame. I know that people can express themselves. This is their full right. But but this building is the symbol of the American democracy. We're talking about an historical institution since the foundation of the U.S. It's there. Okay? And by attacking that, I believe that there is something that is already broken. A lot. A lot of analysts, especially in the Middle East, they started to say, this is the end of America. No, this is not the end, actually. But it means there is some problem that must be fixed. Okay? And I don't know. You see, America, with their great, actually, and there is a lot of big names, big uh, brains, actually, uh, America guiding the world. So it's a shame sometimes we see that some politician they are playing a role, but they are not up to the level, actually, of this potential that the Americans, they have. Okay? But America is American and will continue to be. But as President Biden said during his first speech, a lot of things changed. So America is still America, but there is something that changed and people, they have to absorb it and adapt with it. So the Americans from one side and the whole world from the other side. Yeah, so Lawrence, this is a this is a really fascinating question that that sort of evolves over time, and, and I, I think you can sort of break it up into a few phases without going too far back. But obviously, the Cold War is really, really important as a, as a time when the United States presented itself as a bastion for democracy, for notions of freedom. Um, markets, that, all of that sort of rhetoric that went with the, the with the Cold War, and, and then at the end of the Cold War, that the United States was at the forefront of supporting new democracies as well, and that was also important. And this was, and it was new democracies on the idea that the United States was, as you said in your question, not just any sort of democracy, but a democracy to aspire to, and I. I I think in some respects over time, and I don't know what this is, but as perhaps more and more is revealed of the US democratic system. So, for example, Ali and I have had this chat before. It's, it, it's amazing, for, for example, for many Australians who are, are not necessarily politically aware, but, for example, that you vote on a Tuesday. That, you, that voting is hard. Voting is really, really hard in the United States. The, the fact that we now see more and more stories of sort of voter suppression, of um, voter rolls being purged, of um, 
multiple sort of state level laws being passed um, to ensure that it's that it's hard for former felons to vote, for example. There's a long list of things that that are that you can that you can look at. And at the risk of sort of sounding a bit parochial, when I think about voting here in Australia, primarily at a federal level, it's really easy. We vote on a Saturday. Voting is compulsory. Um, so we have high voter turnout. It's easy for me to vote. I can, where, where I live, I have access, ready access within maybe five to 10 kilometers of five voting booths that I can go and vote at. And even if I'm not in my electorate, it's very easy for me to vote absentee in a multiple ways that I, that I don't have to worry about. I can vote early. I can vote on the day. I go, I go and vote. And I get I get to buy this cake stalls and I get to buy a sausage uh, where I vote in we call it democracy sausage um, because we get to, we have barbecues on on election day um, so this uh, your question is really good because I think there is a frame of the the idea of the United States as a bastion of liberal democracy and then the reality I think of how that is. More so, not just in the last four years, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I, I think it has been happening over the perhaps the last 12 to 16 years. So I'd sort of say perhaps the last four, four to five maybe presidential cycles. Okay, so I'd like to follow up on that um, with both of you with a, a quote that I found from the Cairo Review that um they published an essay in the fall of last year before the election. And so I'd like to read you the quote and uh, get your reaction along with a sort of a follow-up question to that. Um, so the in the Cairo Review last year, they wrote that the world was watching the United States in terms of our pandemic response, the Black Lives Matter movement, and this is especially prescient, how then President Trump was calling the election fraudulent months before it occurred. And they wrote, Trump's claims of voter fraud in the upcoming election put the United States in need of international election watchers rather than being a leader in observing elections worldwide. And so I, I found that to be um, um, important that there were calls in the United States of alarm, but that it, this resonated around the world, um, that casting aspersions on our election system was something that was new and um, dangerous. And so that led me to, I was discussing this with someone, we'll call him Dennis in Bethesda, and he may or may not be my father, but he wanted to know, um, it, do you think that the United States has peaked? Um, is this is this the, a trend that's going to continue? Um, are, are you know is the United States going to fade away? Will will China or another nation become the leader in the twenty first century? Um, what are your thoughts about that? So, Ellie, this is a huge question that that relates to the US's ability to project itself, and that goes that goes to sort of terms of both. Its capacity to project its soft power in this respect, so before its hard power, but also goes to questions of its internal legitimacy as well. 
And so I think there's a number of things that are happening here simultaneously. The first is that it's not unusual for great powers to rise and fall. I mean, this is an historical trend that, that happens over time. Um, and that whether this, if you sort of go with the Kennedy thesis of whether this is a form of overstretch from the United States or if it's more about issues internally that are, pre- that are preventing it from, um, from projecting itself in the way that it did. And this is, this is not to say, I don't think anything has changed with US hard power. That remains sort of uh, um, uh, unequivocally and unprecedentedly high. There, there's, there's still no one even close to, not even defence spending, but the capacity to project military power that the United States has. Whether it's peaked, the, so you, you've both, and, and, and peaked as a democratic institution, peaked as a democratic model, Perhaps yes. Uh, we're already seeing in this in the the post twenty twenty environment the the raft of of state legislatures that are passing laws, extraordinary laws that that you can um, track these. I think is it the Brennan Center um, that 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 follows this. Um, that is, I think some of the laws, for example, that are being passed by the Georgia state legislature on on voter suppression. Are, are extraordinary, and again, in response, and, and this is this is this is also gets back to your point, Ali. Sort of the self fulfilling prophecy of a fraudulent election that where every responsible body in the United States has said, "No, this was not a fraudulent election," and then we have state legislatures and some people of the house, some people in the House of Representatives, looking to pass laws to protect a system that wasn't broken in the first place in, in some parts of it. So there's this. There's this sort of horrible sort of secular uh, um, issue with especially voting, if we sort of want to regard that as a key part of, of, of US, vote, uh, US, elect, uh, sorry, US democracy. And so the degree to whether it's peaked or not, um, I, I'm, I'm tempted to, to misquote whoever it was that um, I, I think it was in Vietnam who was asked um, what was the... Um, in the 1970s, what was uh, what was um, is how can we judge the French Revolution? And he famously said, "It's too soon to judge." Um, and, and and I sort of think these are these are sort of things that we can best judge in sort of 10, 20 years time. But at the moment, I, and, and I think I shared an op-ed with you that I wrote on this that I don't think the United States is the model democracy that it once was. And the fact that the Cairo leader, the, the newspaper, which is, which is sort of ironical because for years the United States has been sending election watches to, to other countries to ensure that their elections are, are fair and above board. There's a certain sense of irony in the fact that there were calls that maybe we should be sending watches from countries that we don't immediately think of as being all that democratic to observe the U.S. election. That was that was my thought as well, George. What what are your thoughts? Well, to send to send people to watch and to monitor the the, the American elections, I believe this is the beginning of the end of the modern history. <laughs> so I hope we're not going to reach this phase because if this American model <clears throat> will collapse, it means the whole liberal world also is going to face actually big dangers when it comes to power and harsh and soft power. We know very well that power is situational. There is always up and down. 
And for long period, the main, let's say, concern of the U.S., especially the U.S. post-Cold War was to watch the Russians, let's say, to surround the Russians. But they forgot a very dangerous detail far away who's working day and night, which is China. To stop China, I believe it's already almost impossible in a peaceful way. If it's not too late, a little bit also. So they had been working, they have plans, they have strategies. In some places, they transcended already the potential of the U.S. I'm not talking about the military one, because the military, the U.S. still number one, and they can be minimum for the next maybe 20 years. But China actually is, is climbing very quickly. So if the Chinese are going to be the new superpower or the new main player, against the U.S. So which which democratic world we're going to talk about? Okay? So that's why I believe the U.S., they have to consolidate more and more, starting from domestic issues, okay? And then a new strategy for foreign policy. But uh, um, I insist on, on, on what I just mentioned, that it's a little bit late to stop China. So can I just add to something that George said and it's following up from your question Ali I, I think this is another important part that and, and George mentioned sorry George mentioned the idea of the United States as not only sort of a a, a self-anointed sort of bastion of democracy in lots of ways but also the sort of the key the the, the, the upholder of that post second world war rules based order that liberal that liberal international order that and so i think that's a that's the more interesting part not if sort of what happens with that but if if america does withdraw from that china has shown no interest whatsoever in stepping into that breach with respects to sort of a a, a protector or a cornerstone or whatever language you might use of sort of that liberal rules based order and so that for me is the bigger concern with the demise of the United States. It's not it's it's what happens to that to that liberal order, which which I quite like personally, and I know Australia quite likes because it's there in all of its foreign policy documents. Let's talk about that um, that change to the U.S. approach to its allies and uh, and its role in upholding the, the post World War II liberal order. So. Uh, there was a lot of thought in at least some circles in the U.S. that Biden could hit the reset on that and that the, the last four years would be sort of an aberration. Uh, but there's been a lot at least written here in the U.S. And I don't know how much that's resonated elsewhere, but there has been a lot written in the U.S. recently that maybe that's not the case. Uh, maybe that there is a, a growing suspicion among our allies that, you know, we can't sort of have a whiplash every four years in terms of these relationships, we have to think about the U.S. differently permanently going forward in terms of its role in, in, um, in, in protecting this, this liberal order. I believe that uh, some changes already started to emerge, but the, the post-Second World War, or the Allies, actually, the Western Front, the Liberal Front, they still need to the U.S. and the U.S., they need, actually, those people. Yeah. The U.S. cannot exist in Europe without their allies. In Asia, it's the same. So there is common interest, okay? And I believe with this new administration, there is a real attempt 
to restore, let's say, this type of alliances. But it's not going to be the same deal like before. Oh, no, for granted, the allies, they can count on the U.S. It's very clear, okay? So I still see that the U.S. actually can't move all over freely without those allies. And those allies, they know that very well because without the U.S., sometimes, especially for the Europeans, it's actually problematic for them to implement because also the Arfin is facing from the other side. They have the Russians from one way and the other way, actually, they have China. The question that always I'm giving, if, because everything is possible, we might reach a phase when this liberal sample of the U.S., let's say, will collapse. Let's see, okay? So which world we're going to have? Even if China is going to be a superpower, which model we're going to have? We're talking about another approach, another vision. Second, can the Chinese give the world what the Americans gave? Absolutely not. So that's why it's, it's a really duty for the U.S. and their allies, actually, to consolidate not only their relations, but also to, to consolidate their system and their vision how to deal with the world. Because the world is depending on the Americans. They see until today, the whole world, that America actually is the model. And that's why I believe the Americans, they have to read carefully what's going on in the whole world and to start step by step to calculate their measures. So only in this way, I believe they can exist and protect even their allies on the long run. Because I repeat, we're talking about common interests. They can't do anything without the U.S. In some cases, they can't exist without the U.S. And the U.S. also is in need for those people. That's why this new administration, I believe they have to revise. They have a lot of work to do, okay, to clean actually the effects of the last four years and to build this trust again, especially with the Europeans especially with the Europeans. The, the first speech that I heard Anthony Blinken give recently, um, the, 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 the recently confirmed Secretary of State, the, the first thing I thought was, thank God, um, the, the, the adults are back in the State Department. And it wasn't necessarily, and it was, it was a return to sort of in so many ways traditional American foreign policy language in that respect, that it spoke of alliances, it spoke of interests, it didn't sort of, sound like um, lines out of The Sopranos, which is often like what Mike Pompeo sounded like, the sort of acting as a standover man. The, the, the problem in, in so many ways with parts of the Trump foreign policy was that a number of the things that he called China out were comple- on were completely valid. So, for example, the issues with uh, um, IP, the, 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 the trade imbalance, the degree to which um, China was 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 secretive, for example, and, we, and we've seen this with respect to the, the, the spread of the coronavirus. Um, but it was done in such a ham-fisted and amateurish way that it didn't achieve any of the US's national interests. The other part that I think was 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 deeply problematic with the Trump foreign policy and, and that he viewed foreign policy as a zero-sum game. And didn't, and didn't understand that it's not just about paying your bills as it was with NATO. And it's not just about, um, what's in it for the United States. The what's in it for the United States was more than monetary, was more than, 
favourable trade deals. It was, again, that idea that we've been speaking about a lot is that the, the, the US gets gets credibility through its actions. Um, and so getting back to your question, Lawrence, I'm of the opinion that it's an aberration in general, but I also think that there were parts of the Trump foreign policy that the Biden presidency, perhaps future presidents can look at and say, hey, these are issues that we can perhaps push, but we can do it in a more traditionally diplomatic way. So I think there are perhaps ways that they might have observed with respect to particular issues with China, but to do it in a way that is remark- that, that is more effective and, and less high cost than it was done through the, the Pompeo, prim- primarily the Pompeo State Department. Do you see the attitudes towards America differing in terms of age, that those who are younger either have um, more affection or less affection than those who have a wider view of the United States and our relation to the world around us? Okay, no doubt, no doubt that with this new generation, they have their own priorities and approaches uh, that uh, they are different from ours. And there is a gap, there is a gap. And uh, to understand actually completely what's going on, I mean, it's sometimes a little bit uh, hard because everything is moving very quickly. And even sometimes there is no time to, to, to accumulate even memory. So for sure, with this new generation, we're talking about new approaches and new priorities. But but which type of new realities also they are going to bring? I mean, there is a question mark because we might be talking about new strategies and new choices in general. Okay, we can't fix it until now. We can, uh, let's say, uh, in details, know what might happen, but for sure we're moving towards something new. So, Ali, my sense on this one is that as younger people become more engaged with what's going on around them, that the US is not the beacon that it once was and when they view things such as Black Lives Matter, especially Australians. Um, and one of the big ones that Australians, especially young people, find it very difficult to to fathom is gun laws or lack thereof in the United States, for example. We have very strict gun laws in Australia. And as a result, I don't think that it's unfair to say that there is a direct correlation between our strict gun laws and our um, very low number of gun deaths per year in Australia, especially when one compares them per capita to the United States. Um, they do find it increasingly difficult to reconcile the the aspirational language in those founding documents and yet then to see, for example, the number of um, African-American men incarcerated, um, the, the number of uh, black deaths, um, those sort of things. So I, 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 I think that there is perhaps the idea that it goes back to what you were saying a little bit earlier, America ain't what it used to be in some respects as that sort of country that you look to as to say either I want to be more like that or that's something that we can aspire to. I think I see a common thread running through both of your answers, which is, and this is something that certainly is, is resonates with the U.S., that it's always been aspirational, that you know we are always moving towards that, you know, that democracy and that, that equal society that we hope to be. 
But something that I, I think I hear in both of your responses, and I, I'd like for you to tell me if I'm completely wrong or if there's something here, but which is um, that there is a disconnect between what you think America wants to project to the world and what it is. But despite that, you think we need to be that. There, there is a disconnect between the the sort of the goals and the realities. Whether the US needs to be is a, is a different question, but it has always – it's good that there is a country that has those aspirations and in turn has been able to project them into parts of the world. And the fact that we have had – again, I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the presidency of Donald Trump coincided with the rise of more illiberal um, wannabe uh, strongmen such as Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, I think of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. I think of um, our man Erdogan in Turkey. Um, the the sort of the, the tacit, if it wasn't support, it certainly was a failure to condemn Vladimir Putin when he should have been. So there is, I think, this intangible sort of untangible, intangible um, idea of the, the the United States not necessarily needing to be what it says it is, but its role as a both projector and protector of liberal democracies is important, really important. Yes, for sure it's better than the other alternatives. But now our, our intention is to consolidate this alternative that we have it now. You see, yes, there is this connection. And uh, you see, I, was, I, I used always to say to my students that it's good to have nice States of America on the international arena because without the U.S., world politics will be boring. <laughs> you see? So the U.S. actually, it is their duty to protect this model, yes, because uh, as I mentioned before, we can't expect which type of new world or new world order, actually. So what happened recently in the U.S., and I'm talking about the last four years, we're talking also about a new choice for the Americans. We're talking about a person who became president, and for the first time, he's not from the establishment. So as you gave also different examples for different presidents in the world, it means that the mentality of this new generation or people change. Yani, already no one can trust this traditional type of party system, and that's why they are searching for something new. So the example is Erdogan in Turkey, who is now trying even to, to adopt a new constitution just to stay in power. We have the Filipino case, etc., etc. So... What happened during the Trump administration on the domestic and the international level, I believe it was not just a turning point, but a phase that we have to study indeed because it paved the way for new changes. So there is a challenge for the Americans, not only on the international level, but first on the domestic level. So the U.S., they have to work on rebuilding the trust between their own people. Usually, what happened in the elections, we still see some consequences until now, and this is unacceptable, okay, in a democratic, actually, country with a democratic culture. 
We know that politics is a game. There is a winner and we have to accept actually the result as we accepted for years the result of the elections. So I believe there is something that must be done inside to create this trust again. And when it comes to the foreign policy, again, actually to reconsolidate the relation with their allies. Because this model actually is not only for the U.S., but the whole segment of the world is based actually on this model. Okay, so a small earthquake in the U.S. and its consequences is going to be on the whole world. So it's a challenging issue. If the U.S. want to stay a superpower from one side, they have first to consolidate inside and then to continue for the outside. What do you want Americans to know about either of your countries, your regions, And what do you want us to know about the world around all of us that we don't know? And I think it is a fair assumption that Americans don't know a lot beyond our shores. Um, We are a fairly insular country. So I would love to know what would you want us to what would you want us to know and think about and consider? This is a great question, Ellen. It comes to a conversation that I think you and I had with some of your students um, the back end of last year, I think. The thing that I would most want Americans to know is that what they do has phenomenal impact outside of the United States. And, and, I, and the time that I spend in the United States, the time I speak to you and the time I spoke to my students, that perhaps is the one that is that is least understood. And and things such as I, I mean wall to wall media coverage in Australia of the November elections. It was extraordinary. I I I I I would go as far to as say that there was as much coverage of the US elections in the media here that there is of Australian elections in the media here. And that that matters. And there's a reason for that, and it's not. It wasn't just the sort of the the the, the clown show that was the Trump presidency in, in lots of ways. It was the fact that what the U.S. does matters. The thing that I would like Americans to know about us is that we've also got a pretty good democracy too that functions really, really well, and there are parts of it that are perhaps worthwhile exploring. Um, I, I understand that compulsory voting is, is, a, is a non-starter in the United States, but it works. It, it means that perhaps we don't have the polls that the United States has, for example, in primaries. When everyone is out, it doesn't mean the far wings of each party are the only ones that are voting, especially in, in primaries. Um, I, I think the, the, the also the, the part just making voting easier for starters is a, is a really good one to have. Make it a public holiday or make it a weekend. Um, have again, and I know this is I know this is a controversial part, but federal elections in Australia are coordinated by a federal body. The the, the Australian Electoral Commission runs elections. My my voting ballot that I have in my electorate here of Clark looks exactly the same as the one that people would would mark in Western Australia, in South Australia, in New South Wales. Obviously, it's got different names on it, but it looks exactly the same. And they vote exactly the same way that I do. You go to a voting booth, you you mark your box, 
depending on which house you're voting in, one to five and tick a box and you put it in. And the same thing happens in every in every ballot, uh, every voting station across the country. And it works. And so that's the that's one thing as, as far as a, a robust democracy and allowing as many people to vote and having franchise that is valued and is easy. That's the one thing that I would, if I had a sort of a, a megaphone, that's the one that I'd like to, to, to be able to tell um, Americans. And, and regionally, to, to get back to sort of answering your question in full, Ali, the US dropped the ball in, in the Asia Pacific and it's allowed, for example, a, a strong US presidency. We wouldn't have seen what we've seen on the China-India border recently. We would have had a United States just on the side, just stepping in and saying, look, this is not on, guys. You, you, you can't do this. This is You are two nuclear um, armed countries. This is not how it rolls. But, but we didn't have that. And, and, and we've had a variety of sort of things in the region. China's expansion has been because there's been no one in the region to say, no, you can't do that. And so that, I think, is also massively important. Well, I'm coming from uh, a country which is in the Middle East, third world countries, and I'm not, and I'm not allowed even to say uh, what the Americans, they have to do finally. But I believe that... Uh, what is missing in general in the American society when it comes to this political issue is a political culture and political awareness. To know a little bit more about what there is outside their borders, to engage them more. So that's why I believe, uh, and it's related also with education, okay? Because uh, when for the biggest part of the world, America is the model and they are following America. So also, I believe the Americans, they have to know what do we have outside these borders. As, as my colleague mentioned, Australia is a democratic state. There is democratic institutions. While in the other part of the world, also like, like our region where there is always wars and the problems, there is some, let's say, shy democratic attempts, okay, that we hope we can adopt the system that the principle that they have it in the U.S., but still, uh unfortunately, until now, we are failing in this. And as I was mentioning, you mentioned the Australian voting process. We have a very primitive one because we are a sectarian country. We hope one day, let's say, to have a, a normal, open, non-sectarian uh, uh, electoral system where everybody can be represented. But I repeat, when it comes to the Americans, I believe more political awareness, more political culture, because there is a huge difference when it comes, let's say, to liberal experiment, political one in Western Europe and the U.S. The U.S. is a unique establishment where, like any system, there is the plus and there is the minus. Okay, So more political awareness, more, let's say, to know what there is outside their borders, I believe it will help more the U.S. even to consolidate their power. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. I thought this was incredibly informative and interesting, and I love this. And um, we would love for you to come back in six months, a year, so we could do follow-up questions and find out how we're doing and maybe raise our grade a little bit. I would like also to thank your invitation. It was a great, it was a pleasure, actually. 
And I hope that maybe one day actually we can meet, so we can make it live there in Chippensburg. Um, yeah, so I, I joined George in thanking you both for the, the invitation and, and to be involved in such a lively discussion. Um, I'm more than happy to come back and do this. I think these are important issues. And, and yeah, again, thank you so much for the generous invitation and the generous amount of time to discuss important issues. Thank you for listening to this episode of Utterly Moderate. We are deeply appreciative of all the support we are getting from listeners, not only in the U.S., but in countries around the world. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform. Or you can listen to us on utterlymoderate.com, where you will find every episode as well as each episode's companion resources. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully.